0: A few Sundays ago, I got home late to find that my roommates, Bill and Thomas had gone to bed early, taking care to be rested for the upcoming week. Opening my freezer door to get an ice for an ice water, I saw that all four trays were empty. <laughs> so what did I do? I filled them up. Because come Monday morning, there's going to be cubes for my boys. (laughs) (laughs) Cubes for my boys.
1: Have to record a podcast with my friend. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy. I am here as always with my co-host Anthony on the road again. Maddox, here we
2: are. It's another October, and that means not just the spooky season. It's also CubeCon season, and we're going to be on the road. Are we on the road right now? Is that what this episode happening? will
1: come out while we are driving back from CubeCon? I see. That's going to be our marathon driving day. Last year we drove in one day both directions, and it's like. 16 hours all told including stops and stuff which is the absolute longest you could ever drive in one day I think realistically and like an hour longer we have to break it up which we're doing on the way out this year but the way back we're just gonna we're just gonna wing it so we're recording this ahead of time I'm sure we're gonna be exhausted on that day after all of the fun that is KubeCon so we just gotta bank this one so we have a nice evergreen topic to uh, to publish on that morning. So something crazy happened in the last week that we're not talking about... Uh, I mean, something crazy is happening in the world at large. Oh, yeah. All kinds of <laughs> Did you want to talk about that? No. Which, which one? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <Okay. laughs> if magic is dead, by the time you hear this... We recorded this ahead of time. What's what's our topic for this episode, Anthony? I think this is maybe a good time to talk a little bit about accessibility
2: in cube design. I think that this is something that maybe gets overlooked. A lot of people, when they're talking about cube designs, they're just really excited about, you know, playing their favorite cards and digging into all the themes and things like that. But I think there's a lot of great reasons just to care about how easy it is for new players to approach your, your cube, especially because so many players, I mean, this comes up in cube design forums all the time, is like, how do I actually get people to play my cube? And so focusing on just making the cube easy
1: for new players to get into, I think is really valuable. So you primarily want to talk about accessibility specifically in cube design, not in magic design more broadly. I mean, we could do both. I mean, they're definitely related, right? Because due to Project Booster Fun, which is Wizards of the Coast's initiative to design many different versions of cards, right? This is, like, Secret Lair falls under Project Booster Fun. So does all of the Collector Booster variants. So does all of the, like, Kaladesh inventions and the storybook frames. Like, all of this sort of stuff falls under this initiative of wizards to, I mean, I think, whether they've said this explicitly or not, make the game more about collecting. It's a bigger collector's experience, right? Like, all of the... The motivations that lead you to create cards that look like this are purely related to making collectible game objects and wanting people to be able to express themselves through the choice of their game objects, not at all making them grokkable, understandable game pieces. No, definitely not. I mean, I think it's maybe
2: less about collecting as much as, yeah, like the self-expression of being able to upgrade your commander deck
1: into more fancy options that reflect whatever you're interested in. Which is a kind of collecting, you know. Sure, yeah, it's pretty targeted. Having more opportunities to collect the things that you like, that reflect your tastes in the way you play the game.
2: But yeah, I think maybe it's more interesting for us as people that design a lot of cubes to talk about, yeah, I mean, that's that definitely is related, but the ways that you make your cube just approachable to people. Great. Are there any other reasons that you think we should really highlight on why we think this is important? I mean, I think the biggest is obviously just that, yeah, a lot of people are just trying to grow their playgroup and just making it uh, easy, like removing barriers that is really valuable. I mean,
1: there's like two things I want to reiterate. One is that this matters a lot more than I think a lot of enfranchised players think. I think a lot of people that are cube designers are tend to be very invested in the game, right? If you've gotten to the point where you are designing your own cube from scratch, you have probably been through lots of other ways to play. You've probably been playing the game for a while. You probably have a sizable collection. And it's so easy to take for granted how much of the game you have learned and understand uh, and can afford to make less understandable because you just have so much baked-in experience and knowledge and I see this all the time, right? Like, we'll talk about, about, I'm sure, the most, like, common accessibility problems of designing cubes. I know a big one is just burn spells that at some point were oh, eroded and yeah. masse. Like, 500, some of them were eroded to say they could target planeswalkers. And if you don't have the versions in your cube or the versions don't exist that, say, can target planeswalkers, I will still get relatively experienced players asking me, like, can I hit a planeswalker with this card? And it's not entirely clear. That's, like... An accessibility problem that even affects pretty enfranchised players, but this goes all the way down to just, you know, people that show up to your game store, show up to whatever that you're trying to entice to play your cube. Cube is already so complicated. It's already a bunch of new cards, many of which they've probably never seen before, maybe they never played with before. There's a lot of intimidation factor when it comes to drafting a cube for yeah, the first time, especially true. with a seasoned play group, if you're like the new one there, and adding on top of that any additional barriers, no matter how minor they may seem, is I think hugely detrimental to growing a playgroup, which is what I know so many people listening to the show want to do.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think you touched on something that we talk about a lot in sort of like design more broadly, which is that if you're just designing for the people that sort of have the greatest need, you're actually just going to make it work better for everyone. That's you know, what I, think I was going to say. This is the example I think that comes up all the time is things like curb cuts. You know, you have instead of just a curb that goes all the way around the corner, you get a little ramp uh, on each on each side. And this was not always the case. This was a pretty recent development that people who had additional needs needed, uh, you know, wheelchairs, things like that, to have more access to sidewalks. Nowadays it's actually just great for people that are, you know, walking their bike and have a baby stroller and or you know, they're on rollerblades all kinds or of reasons. Or are slightly old or, yeah, or, are or you crutches. Just, or like, your ankle just hurts a little bit that <laughs> yeah. day. It's just like makes walking a little bit nicer down the street. I'm sure
1: even if you take just completely 100% able bodied people, you decrease the number of times people trip by doing that, right? Like how many times people just trip over a curb? It's better for everybody in every way. And this is true of every kind of accessibility issue. We should maybe just define accessibility. I think the kind of accessibility you're talking about is about this, like, universal approachability and, like, usability by, like, broad populations, which oftentimes equates to making sure that whatever the thing you're making works for people that are differently abled, right? Uh, And that's one way you can think of accessibility. The other way is just in, like, the, like, art way, like, accessibility, just making something that is appealing to a broad audience that people can understand and, like, the ease of intellectual access of something, right? Like, Like, an accessible movie is one that is accessible to lots of people in the sense that they can understand it they can uh, understand what's going on they can appreciate it they can find it beautiful whereas there's definitely like much more challenging movies that you need a bunch of historical context or you need a bunch of references to other cinematic pieces of history to like really appreciate what the artist has done there that's a less accessible piece of art because you need all of this additional context to really appreciate it i think both these kinds of accessibility matter in cube design and in magic yeah and i think they overlap a
2: lot and this is obviously not going to be your only priority as a cube designer. Part of your motivation is also to collect the coolest, fanciest versions of cards, and some of that might mean adding some additional friction for players. But it's always just a, a matter of understanding like really what your goals are and then balancing those priorities. And in some cases, you might say, well, you know, this particular card is just too difficult to read. It's just not worth it. Another consideration some people might have is not just bringing people that are new to Cube into their local playgroup, but maybe just bringing people that are pretty new to Magic altogether into their playgroup. I feel like a lot of people are really excited about Cube. They want to get new players, you know, a good friend of theirs that doesn't really play Magic but is, like, kind of curious. And Cube, I think, can be a pretty great way to get them in. But... It is yeah. a lot, like you're saying. So I think, you know, if you have people that are pretty new, haven't played a lot, then definitely thinking about these concerns is is much more important.
1: Yeah, I, I think Cube is still a very difficult way to learn the game from the ground up. Honestly, like, I know that so many people these days are exposed to magic through Commander, and I think Commander is also an awful way to learn the game from yeah. the ground up, and so... In that sense, like, sure, Cube is as good as a lot of the ways people learn how to play Magic because I think it's probably about as complicated and difficult as your average game of EDH to parse. I think the most accessible way to learn that most people can realistically pursue is Arena. Go on Arena, go through the sort of tutorials. Like, I've had friends that have asked me, like, how do I get into Magic? And I'm like, look... I don't play online Digital League for all these reasons that, you know, are important to me. I like the community aspect of, like, all these things. But it's the best way to, like, get up to speed if you want to then come out and do some drafting uh, with people and play a cube. Like, play Arena for a few hours, you know, for a couple weeks. And that's a really good way to get up to it. Because Magic is a really hard game to learn. Yeah. I will
2: say the cube has a couple things going for for it. The fact that you don't necessarily need to own your cards, it's not like go yep, buy a precon huge. commander huge. deck and then come play. It's like, no, we have the cards here right now. It's also infinitely flexible that if you want to say like, okay, this player isn't ready for drafting, we can do sealed with the cube, or we can yep. just like I'll just hand pick two cards out of it. So there can definitely be sort of like other ways you can approach that learning experience, using a cube as a set of cards to to use as a teaching tool.
1: Yeah, cube in the most abstract sense can be, I think, a yeah. good teaching tool. Cube draft maybe not maybe, maybe more much. difficult all
2: right so should we talk about some of the details of things that i think make a cube more accessible absolutely so i think that the sort of like obvious superficial stuff is something you already touched on is just like having cards that have the text on them that is what the card does
1: i wish this was a given but from the experience i've seen with a bunch of cubes this is not given like lots of cubes and i just don't have this
2: yeah i mean especially with burn spells i think that's like a case where it's it's really tricky like the card reads like it just does a thing like you wouldn't it's not like reading an old copy of chains of mephistopheles and being like i don't quite get this like let's clarify it you would read that and think like yeah this burn spell can perfectly. players and creatures no problem uh and so that can be pretty tricky there's also cards that you know don't necessarily Should have
1: we actually like spell out the rules change in case people don't know so that's a great point this is maybe just a weird history that people haven't Let's make the seen. episode as accessible as possible so when planeswalkers were first designed in Lorwyn. They were trying to figure out how to make all of the cards that existed prior to Lorwyn work for Planeswalkers, right? Because now you have this new card type that no card has previously referenced. And the question is like, well, should burn spells be able to Planeswalkers? Like, how are we going to actually manage how this interacts with the rest of the rules of the game? And their solution at the time was to say that anytime damage is dealt to a player, it can be redirected to a Planeswalker they control. Which means that if you attack a player, they can choose not to block, they take damage, you can redirect that damage to a Planeswalker you can use a burn spell that can hit a player and then redirect that damage to a Planeswalker. And it makes sense why they made the decision at that time, right? Because they had, at that point, what? 400 burn spells printed. They didn't want to day zero errata all of those burn spells for the five Planeswalkers they were going to put in Lorwyn, right? Right, yeah. That's a crazy thing to do. So they did it that way, and then... Ultimately, I think probably came to regret doing it that way, because then they continued to print burn spells that still had this additional sort of rules hoop. You had to understand that there was this planeswalker redirection rule to know how these spells worked. Right, it's a balance. They can either go back and like change the text on every single card, or
2: change the rules engine that the cards work within, and they chose to sort of put it in the, the machinery rather than on the, the individual cards. And
1: I really don't envy trying to figure out how to do that, right? It's a really hard problem to solve. I think based on where they landed in present day, they probably came to regret that decision because now the way that burn spells work is they specify either any target, which means a creature, a player, or a planeswalker, or they specify... Or or a battle, right? Or a battle, that's true. Or they specify a creature or a planeswalker if they can't hit a player. I mean, that's that's a perfect example of the kind of knock-on effect, right? Like, it was impossible for them to print a burn spell that could hit planeswalkers but not players until they made that second rules change which effectively did make all burn spells that could target players prior the wrong rules text. They did, like The text was no longer correct to how the game engine actually worked. And it's not always entirely clear either. Like When it comes to cube, I know, for example, a lot of people playing at the peaks of power level were disappointed when this rules change happened because it did effectively change what Fiery Confluence could do. Because Fiery Confluence previously could do two damage to each opponent up to three times which you could then redirect to their Planeswalkers they controlled. And when the rules changed, now it said you could target Planeswalkers, but not that you could redirect damage dealt to an opponent through some other means. So because that spell does not target, that cannot deal damage to Planeswalkers. And this is a great example of an accessibility issue that affects even pretty invested players. Like, it's very reasonable to not know that when you're looking at a copy of Fiery Confluence in a pack.
2: Yeah, and and talking about sort of like how this improves the general experience, that's, to me, not the fun part of Magic the Gathering. The fun part is, you know, making decisions about am I attacking or blocking, what am I targeting? Right. Actually just figuring out like, hey, Judge, let's talk through the history of of, uh, burn spells and how does this card actually work. That's not the part that I think is really fun. No, for sure. So very similarly, there's a lot of cards that just like, when originally printed, are not super clear. Uh, Maybe they just don't have reminder text for a keyword, something like that. And sometimes you have a choice, and there's flexibility, you know, you have the foil version that doesn't have reminder text or the normal printing, which does have reminder text. And again, if this is a priority, you can choose to opt to not have that card foil so you can make sure you have more clear reminder text. I feel like we've been seeing this even more with the expansion of the types of versions where often on the sort of like special fancy versions, they'll just not include reminder text on things.
1: Yeah, which actually sometimes works the other way. So, yes, for the most part, the regular printing is the correct Oracle text and the foil printing is omitting a bunch of things and and shortcutting it with keywords. In the case of Luris, a companion uh, in my own cube, I specifically chose to include a foil version that didn't have the companion reminders text because two months after companion came out, that reminder text was wrong. So uh, it was no longer correct to say you have to you know, just cast it from outside the game because now you had to pay three to put it into your hand. It was like a rules change that happened shortly after the mechanic was released that meant that... The one that actually didn't have the reminder text was more correct because it didn't have incorrect reminder text on it. They've since printed copies of Lurus with correct reminders text if you're into that kind of thing. But it's a great example of like the kinds of things that like you as the invested cube designer should care about because you shouldn't expect your players to know or think or care about it.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way of framing it. Like You as the designer can take on that burden of making the whole experience better rather than putting that burden on your players The companion text is also especially confusing because a lot of cube designers will then play it with the original rules because it yeah the mechanic kind of functioned in draft environments, but that just adds this extra layer of complexity, which leads me into the, the next thing that I think you can do is just, even if it's not choosing between different card choices, you can just choose between different cards. And there are plenty of cards that are just confusing enough on their own that as a designer, you might just choose to exclude those and lean towards cards that are more easy to understand.
1: Yeah, before we get to that, though, I do think there's like a couple other more obvious examples of cards not having the right text that I see people do all the time. We've had multiple cubes show up to Cube Knight that just have some foreign cards in them. Oh, and that's a great call. The cube designer is just like, well, everyone knows what Tolerian Academy does. And it's like, yes, you might think that this iconic card on a bunch of banned lists that like everybody would know... And it's also relatively mechanically simple. Right? Once you know what Tolerian Academy does, it's not hard to remember what it does. Like, It's a pretty simple card. But we have a lot of people that play a lot of cube with us, right? They are very invested in the game of magic. They've played a lot of cube with us, but they just weren't playing back then. And they don't have that sort of history as context. And there's like, I don't have no idea what this card is. I've never seen this art before. I don't know have any idea what's going on here. And having those foreign cards is a real big barrier. I mean I felt this a little bit with uh with my neoclassical cube, which I'm intentionally accepting more accessibility barriers than I do with my regular Bun Magic cube, because I'm by choice, including all the original printings of cards, which like Again, we had this come up a few weeks ago. The original printing of Mystical Tutor says you can go get an instant, sorcery, interrupt, or mana source. So I can get a land, obviously, a mana source, right? That is so natural to assume it's what you can get if you didn't know that the six edition rules changes made it so that mana sources were no longer a card type and that mana source was basically just dark ritual as far as the only playable mana source card that, you know, used to be a name for instance that produced mana only, pretty much. So... I'm accepting a couple of, of barriers to that there. And- yeah, I mean,
2: and again, it's always a matter of putting all your different priorities on the balance scales and seeing where it shakes out. And that cue is
1: very much about celebrating the history of old magic, so right, it but- is reasonable to
2: uh,
1: tolerate some of that. Right, and I've been collecting heavily played versions of all these cards and their original printings because some of these cards are worth some money and I don't want to, you know, beat up nice versions of these cards. And it just so happens that the Bloodstained Mire, the Onslaught Bloodstained Mire, I was able to get my hands on that was heavily played, is in Portuguese. And I was like, is this a problem? Like, it's one of a cycle of ten so, like, if you've ever seen any of that cycle, like, it's pretty easy to fill in the blanks. It's got the, like, colored text box, so you can see that it's black or red. How big is this going to be in terms of a problem with accessibility? And it has come up. Like, I have definitely seen players that are like, ah, oh, I didn't know what that was, so I just didn't take it. Right. And you you can see it doesn't have any mana symbols on it. It has, like, a tap ability, and if, obviously, you don't speak Portuguese, you're not going to know that it says Sacrifice or whatever. But even that, which I, is one of the safest cards you could potentially have in a, like, foreign language it has been a like minor issue in our drafting with our play group. And it's rough when that comes up in a draft and someone is like, hey, can somebody
2: explain this card to me because I don't know what it is. It's even worse, I think, if, if somebody just doesn't say anything. And like you said, they just don't take the card because they don't understand well, what it is.
1: I mean, in their defense, a lot of people don't want to give up the information of what card yeah, they're considering for their deck. Like, definitely I've true. definitely seen people be like, yeah, well... I didn't ask what that card did, but also like I could tell it was a blue land and I was playing, you know, red or whatever, so I didn't ask and it's like, Well you're playing a red artifact deck and actually that's Telerian Academy and you probably should have taken it. Like there's also reasons to not want to ask, and so it's like it's it's a it's a huge bummer either way.
2: Yeah, I heard about a similar issue to the the Mana Source issue with the card Culling the Weak in a Mystery Booster draft. This card, it says Mana Source in the type line. It costs one black, and it says Sacrifice a creature, add black, 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 black to your mana pool. It just Someone said, it play oh, all time, Mana right? Source, I'll just put that in play. This is an enchantment, Pretty right? darn
1: good Phyrexian. Uh, uh, it <laughs> doesn't say Instant Sorcery. Not Phyrexian Arena. Phyrexian... Uh, Ashnod's Altar. Uh, yeah, or Phyrexian Phyrex- Altar. Yeah, pretty good Phyrexian altar. There we go, we got there.
2: And, uh... Yeah, I mean, again, it's like, it's cool to have these mystery boosters where you have these, like, old weirdo cards, but every time you have to try and figure out how do we roll back this game where we've had this uh, mana source in play for three turns uh, just definitely makes it a little bit more difficult and makes it a little less likely that that person who had that experience is going to come back out to the next Cube night. I
1: mean, like people have social anxiety and if you think that some people are not going to have their entire night ruined essentially by being embarrassed that they misunderstood what Culling of the Week does, some people that is going to make them not come out ever again. Like you just lost them. Anyway, I took you off your next step because I wanted to just make sure we covered foreign language cards. There's also like textless promos like The real far extremes of like, yeah, you're not going to know what this card does unless you already recognize it. You should really avoid those, I think. I mean, I think we could even throw alters in this category as well. It's like super cool to see a cube full of all
2: kinds of custom alters. But again, that has a cost if, if you have text that's obscured. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I think the next thing you can do, aside from just finding individual versions that are the most readable and understandable, is just actually choosing what particular cards you're putting in your cube. And so this could be things like, you know, Questing Beast just has a million lines of text, and it's really easy to miss a lot of those details that can just make a cube a lot more challenging. This is where I think there's going to be a lot more... It it takes, I think, a little bit more priority to make this really happen. Um, So with something like my regular cube, it's really important to me that that is a cube that is... Something that somebody who's pretty new to Magic, maybe they've drafted a couple times, uh, you know, at an FNM, and this is their first cube draft. Those are the people that I want to be able to sit down with this cube and have a reasonable experience. So I definitely prioritize this as much as I can.
1: And as, like, a member of your playgroup that also is invested in growing the group, it is so valuable to have that cube in the playgroup, right? Like, if you did not have that cube, I would build one just like it. So we had one that was, like, specifically great for people that were medium invested in Magic, or even really invested, but had never cube drafted before and showed up to their first cube draft night. That's exactly the kind of cube I want them playing. And if you're listening to this and you have your beloved cube full of your altars and your favorite promo versions of cards that, like, is your baby, maybe consider making another cube if, yeah. a, if a big part of your goal is to get more people to the point where they can draft that cube that you love so much and really get everything out of that experience. And that obviously, that cube that has all the altars and the foils and the special editions
2: also has a certain appeal. So I think that's yeah. almost a more powerful sort of binary strategy of, hey, let's start with this. This is going to like not have a lot of confusion or challenging. This is a good starting place. And then you're going to have a great time opening this pack and seeing all these wild foils after you've done a couple drafts of this and you're feeling more comfortable.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I want to emphasize here is that it's hard to describe this idea that's in my head, but being good at magic... I think is hugely just being detail oriented and like not missing things. By which I mean that if you have a like question of what is the plan to given scenario, and like one player is able to articulate here is why I would do X, and everyone agrees that's the best decision, then it's not like there was strategy per se involved in that. It was just that that player was able to see the full picture, and so much of seeing the full picture is just being able to understand what's going on. There's two great articles that we're kind of referencing or using as a foundation for this episode. One is by Emma Partlow, which is titled, MTG cares more about collectability than accessibility, and it's making the TCG worse. And a more recent one by Kristen Gregory called Framing a Magic Accessibility Issue. And the second one specifically, Kristen talks about how important heuristics are in playing a game this complicated, right? You cannot... Begin every turn and read every single card text, you know, from the beginning. You have to, to some degree, shortcut and say, like, all right, well, lands produce mana. That's what a land does, right? And, you know, creatures have power and toughness. You have to have all of this sort of heuristics to know what you care about and focus your mental energy on. And every time you have to spend some mental energy, even a little bit, to figure out what that card is. Or, I know what that card is, but what exactly does it do? Like, what does that rules text actually mean? Every time you're spending energy on that, you're essentially not spending the energy on, like, playing the game of Magic. You're spending the energy on this additional thing, and it's going to make you worse at the game.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that's a that's a key thing, is figuring out what are the things that you are able to ignore, and if you can kind of just shortcut past that part, because, again, that might not be the most fun part of the game, is just, like, trying to load everything into your RAM, essentially. Right. Um, and this is just
1: another chapter of the accessible for everybody is better for everyone, right? right? Like. Yes, it might be really important to not have a questing beast or a card with you know foreign language on it because some new player literally just won't be able to figure out what it does. But it also makes the game better for you as the franchise players because you are spending less of your mental energy figuring out what cards do, and more actually strategizing about the game. And that is what's fun about the game. Like, pretty universally, we can agree that that is what playing the game of Magic is fun for. I would say pretty universally, maybe not 100% universally. If you are Sam
2: Black, the fact that you can just look at an insane, complicated commander board state and understand everything that's happening all at once, that's kind of a fun skill for some people to exercise as well. But but I mean,
1: that's part of why Sam Black is one of... The best magic players, right? Like, he might, like, it's entirely possible that a huge portion of Sam Black's success as a competitive magic player, I think he even said something more or less to this end when we had him on the show, is just his ability to immediately parse a board state so that he can start having those strategic thoughts and conversations inside his own head more quickly. Maybe he's not even the best at, like, making those strategic decisions. Maybe he would always defer to what, you know, Paul or or Vitor D'Amato Rosa would do in some ambiguous, you know, situation. It's just that he's so much faster at figuring out what situation they are in to figure out what the question that is being asked is.
2: Yeah, that's maybe another little thing to piggyback in here is that one of the ways that uh, just having things be more readable and understandable is it just goes faster, even for skilled players, uh, which if your game nights are just taking way too long, maybe part of that is it's just like pretty hard to parse actually what's going on. Yeah. So just to talk a little bit more about some of the sort of card choices in respect to my main cube, regular cube, I think there's a lot of easy things you can do. There's a lot of cards that just have text on them that just doesn't actually matter. You know, it says, this card can be your commander, or it says, protection from dwarves. or and you have no
1: dwarves in your cube.
2: Yeah, destroy target creature or planeswalker, and then, uh, you know, populate three times. You don't have that many tokens to populate, so it's just, like, rules, text that's on the card that just doesn't really matter. And especially if you're willing to just sort of, like, explore a more creative design with lower-powered cards, we have a lot of, like, every set they print, bear with set mechanic, and that just gives you a ton of, like, material. Material to work with in order to find cards that just fit and, and are going to be fully maximized in your environment
1: yeah and i think you focus on this a bit more in the regular cube than i do in the Bud magic cube but you can even make this a pretty high priority at the highest peaks of power right like i include reanimate not animate dead and mm-hmm. as my like value reanimation spell of choice and i like everything about it more the fact that it costs life the fact that it you know costs one less mana but also that it is a gazillion times simpler. Like, if that card was as mechanically complicated as Animate Dead, I don't think it would be worth the inclusion in my cube for my for my goals. I'm curious, what do you think the most complicated card you run in the regular cube is, or the one that has the greatest potential for confusion or misunderstandings?
2: My my guess is Legolas. Uh, I think that you know there's a pretty standard amount of I think text. you're just that looking goes... for a
1: reason to to throw Legolas under the bus yet again.
2: No, because if you point a bus at him, he he
1: destroys it. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's uh, it's definitely dress down. I think in my own cube, that card has just a lot of complicated long tail rules interactions that even I oftentimes have to like Google to figure out what the heck actually happens in this given scenario. And it's a very conscious decision I make to include it in spite of that. Right? I think the card is cool and worth it for my design goals, and so I include it. Even though I think that that is a, one of the big knocks against the card from a cube design perspective in my environment.
2: So I think that's a great thing to bring up, though, because Dress Down reads very simply. It's actually pretty easy to read. It says, you know, I mean, I guess it being an enchantment that gets sacrificed yeah. is like slightly tricky.
1: The, the, the level one is relatively simple. It's like, right. OK, creatures are just half power and toughness. And if you simplify it like that, it's fine. Until you start thinking about all the next levels of the complexity of the card.
2: But I think that's a perfect segue because I think the next thing that's really important is that Choosing simpler cards doesn't necessarily mean... Or choosing cards that don't necessarily have, like, literally stuff about them that doesn't matter, that has to be ignored... Doesn't necessarily mean, like, dumbing down your environment and making it less complex and interesting. Definitely Because there are different kinds of complexity. And I think that what I would really emphasize here, what I really emphasize in my cube, is this kind of comprehension complexity. Can you look at it and understand what this card does? That's what you
1: emphasize. Minimizing.
2: Uh, Maximizing it is easy to read a card and understand it.
1: Right. And that is
2: very different than understanding all of the long tail of all the kinds of things this card can do. And if you're somebody who is newer to the game or you're reading a card for the first time, if you can just get that level one, you can read it and say, yep, this is a, a cantrip that uh, stops a creature from doing something for a turn and like feel confident in your evaluation, that's great. Even if your evaluation is not technically correct or not comprehensive because there is a lot of depth in something that a card can do, that's actually not that important. So you can, in a lot of places, have it both ways where you can have cards that just look simple and understandable but then still offer a lot of depth for your your very experienced players
1: yeah i mean it's like the dumb example is like lightning bolt is very simple it says deal three damage to any target but what that can be if you understand the game is a kill spell or a sort of combat trick it's a kill spell for a big thing in combination with something else in combat use it It, with
2: first strike to use it with first
1: strike kill your opponent with it like kill a planeswalker with it right like that very simple line of rules text obscures a lot of actually interesting strategic complexity, right? And obviously Linguable is just really good, so to say it's like really strategically complex might be gilding the lily a little bit, but it does a lot more than the rules text implies, which is kind of the opposite of something like Questing Beast, which has a whole bunch of text, which basically just amounts to attack your opponent and they really can't do much about it, right? Like the things you can do with Questing Beast are way more limited despite a much bigger block of text on the card.
2: Yeah, and there's something else with Questing Beast, which is, I don't know exactly how to frame this, but it's like it's easy to make in play errors with it, where it's like, "Oh, I forgot that this damages the planeswalker." Oh, I thought about, I forgot about that damage prevention and that damage that's prevention.
1: A, that's one of the big things really, that it's common to
2: forget about. Yeah, yeah. it gets it, it it affects things in ways that might not be intuitive and can make You're a like player I'll block feel, and then I'll give
1: my thing protection from with Mother of Runes and it's, and it's like, like cool, nope. your thing dies. Mm-mm. Have fun. Bad time.
2: So yeah, I think that minimizing those kinds of experiences, especially if you're thinking about like that retention retention question of like what's gonna make somebody not want to come back and them feeling dumb about, oh, I just like traded my whole board away because I didn't understand how that damage prevention effect would work can be
1: pretty rough. Right. To piggyback on that though, I think you said that it doesn't mean you're necessarily sacrificing, you know, interesting depth and complexity for your cube to run simpler cards. I would say for the most part, on average, you are making your cube more deep and interesting strategically by including simpler cards, because, again, you are just taking all of their brain energy, their brain power, and focusing it on the strategy decisions, not the comprehension decisions right, yeah. or the, like, on the stuff that matters, the stuff that makes the game fun, which is what so many people want.
2: Right. So stepping back a little bit more from individual card choices, I think the other big thing you can do is just include some, like, strong signaling cards in environment, like cards that say pretty loudly, hey, build around me in this way. I'm a zombie lord. Draft a bunch of zombies around me, and I'm going to pay you off. Or I'm Feather the Redeemed. I say, target me with instant or sorceries, and I will give you a bonus.
1: still using Feather as the example because he refuses to say anything nice about Legolas.
2: (laughs) I could have used Legolas. Um, (laughs) The one that's still in the cube, for example? (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's not about my cube. It's about a good example of a signaling card. And this, again, might feel pretty minor, but I think that that just goes such a long way. Like Especially if you talk to people that are, you know after their first draft like what was your experience with your first cube draft it often goes something like well i saw this cool card early in the draft and i kind of went for it and built around so
1: it. right i mean and that's another like dumb thing right like talking to your players asking them like open-ended questions like how did your draft go how'd you feel drafting the cube how'd you end up with this deck you'll find that so many players that are less enfranchised are like i saw this thing and i decided i'm just doing that and in a cube like mine that can be really hard right like you could just like see uro and be like well i'm gonna do self mill and it's like well okay well self mill is not actually really a thing even though yes that will be good with uro or is just good in general and like that's how so many of the cards are like good in my cube and i think the regular cube is a really good example of how powerful appealing cards can play a different role towards accessibility that is a huge benefit to new players or less experienced players.
2: Yeah, and I think something that's also relevant when we're talking about not necessarily making compromises while trying to make something accessible is you maybe add 12 kind of like big signaling cards like this. You're not really changing the environment in a big way, but you really change the way that it plays for a
1: lot of people. Well, you're probably not changing the environment. Unless those cards are also the best cards in the cube by a wide margin, then you've probably changed it pretty substantially. It's possible. It's possible.
2: (laughs) so the sort of foil to this is not including things or trying to avoid things that are like trap cards things that send a big signal but then don't actually really work so maybe yeah. this this kind of goes hand in hand with like incidental text and things like that where maybe something just looks like it's a mill card i remember i had this issue with the card patient rebuilding when i first built my cube which is a card that just draws you a bunch of cards but it also mills your opponent and somebody said well i took this pack one and then i didn't see the mill deck and i, I didn't know what to do so again if you if you you want to include those kind of signaling cards also make sure you're not having any that are going to lead your opponent into traps
1: yeah i feel like i've said this on the like four of the last eight episodes we've recorded but one of the things i tell people when they're drafting the bun magic cube if i'm going to give them like the shortest possible elevator pitch and they're brand new to it is like there's reanimate but there's not reanimator right like do not pack one pick one reanimate and be like looking for discard outlets and nine drops because they are not present in this cube
2: which is Great. I mean, that's a way to do it. But I think you also acknowledge that it's worth it to you to have that card. And it is some additional friction that you have to explain. And yes. uh, let's say, generously, three people at every draft are not going to listen to that. <laughs> like, they're going to yes. be focused on uh just like shuffling or doodling around on their phone or something instead of paying attention to your pre draft speech.
1: Yeah. And I'm one
2: of the loudest pre draft <laughs> speech givers. Imagine if you're a little quieter than me. <laughs> I think related to signaling cards is just including some very explicit synergies in addition to implicit synergies. So what I mean by implicit or emergent might be something like aggro. It's like if I just put a bunch of Savannah Lions in one deck, they will synergize with each other. They will be more than the sum of their parts, but that might not necessarily be obvious to a lot of people. But if you instead include things that say like... Put a plus and plus one counter on a creature and other creature that says whenever you put a plus and plus one counter on a thing, get a bonus. Whenever that... you
1: X, Y. Exactly. Whenever you Y, Z. I'm doing synergy now.
2: And this is, again, an area where I think that some very experienced players, they really enjoy those emergent themes because it is kind of tricky and it's fun to solve that puzzle and find those things that weren't explicitly laid out by the designers of the cards. But you don't have to make the entire cube one or the other. You can definitely just include a sprinkling of just some on-ramps that are giving a signal for people that are new to the environment on a thing that they can do. And it doesn't have to be everything that they could do if they draft this cube a million times, but just a few options.
1: Yeah, I would say I think it's maybe not that experienced players necessarily prefer finding emergent synergies. I think from cube design perspective, a lot of people think that the more explicit synergies can lead to, like, on-rails decks, in, if that's what you kind of support. And to your point, you can definitely have explicit synergies present without having, like, the only thing you can do in green white that happens every single draft is you have green white plus and one, plus one counters right like there is a lot of space between having some, a couple explicit synergies and having an entirely on Rails draft archetype and playing in that space you can find a nice balance that uh, gives you everything you want as a cube designer in terms of the range of viable decks and also gives new players something to latch onto that doesn't require this deep immersion thinking right
2: the last thing I think I would say is going back to an episode we did a couple weeks ago, a couple of months ago, about custom draft rules. I think this is something that is very appealing to a lot of designers, but changing the rules in any way, you know, in extreme senses, like I have in my Turbo Cube, where I change the mana cost of or- all spells, even doing smaller things like changing the size and structure of draft packs, that's relatively easy, because if you're assembling all the packs in front of somebody, that's not a huge burden.
1: Including but draft is- matters cards is another, like, small yeah. way that, like, people's expectations are just going to be... Changed and confronted, and these are all like fun things to
2: experiment with, and I think people absolutely should. But just recognize the real cost on your your accessibility and what kind of players are going to enjoy that or just be turned off and not necessarily come back to the next Cube Night.
1: Yeah, I think maintaining a relatively accessible cube, and I say relatively as in relative with your design goals, right? Like you know, if you're listening, if you're not actually looking to grow the play group, you play with the same people over and over again, and it's a very regular group, and in that case yeah, you probably have a little less pressure on making sure that all of these boxes are ticked. Though, I will reiterate, I think that what is best for less enfranchised or new players is oftentimes what's best for more enfranchised players as well. But I I think really the job of a cube designer trying to maintain an accessible cube is, frankly, in 2023, about like knowing when to say no to all of the things Wizards is giving us, right? In terms of Mechanical complexity in terms of different versions of card printings and like ridiculous frames and secret layers in terms of universes beyond stuff that feels off in a way that changes expectations. There's nothing about a Doctor Who card that inherently doesn't work with the game mechanically or is more complicated, but I think it would certainly increase the kind of comprehension complexity to have cards from an entirely different context in a pack. Like it's going to cause someone to like stop and think and wonder about things that are not related to the strategy of the game. So... You know, Wizards has its goals, right? Which, as we have to remind ourselves, constantly are related to growing the business, the bottom line, dividends for the investors, blah, blah, blah. And I think it is more important now than ever as a cube designer if you want to keep your the game you're curating accessible to just say no to a lot of that stuff, frankly. Uh, or be very, very selective about the ones you do allow in your cube if you want to keep things approachable for new players.
2: Yeah, and it's obviously always a difficult balance, because what is making things less approachable can also be what makes things, like, appealing and exciting, so I think that it is really just important to be aware of that, and again, like, talk to your players and ask them if there was anything that was frustrating, ask them what, like, got them into the deck they they got, and what they felt was successful or not, and you might end up hearing a lot of these kind of points of, like, well, I literally just didn't know what these cards were in the draft, and that, that really slowed me down. We got time, Anthony. Let's do a pack one pick one from a listener submitted cube. Yeah, we haven't been doing these as much. We should we should definitely do it because we have a lot in the queue. I have just run a randomizer.
1: And whether you've been to or not, we have some altered cards in this cube so relevant for our conversation. All
2: right, I've run a randomizer, and we're going to do a pack one, pick one from Finns, the F360 Cube. This looks to me like a pretty classic cube. It's got a lot of iconic cards. I mean, just to, to build off talking about accessibility a little bit more, an obvious thing that makes a big difference is just familiarity. If you know that your play group is, or you know the people that you might be wanting to bring into your playgroup, are familiar with a certain kind of play. You know, maybe they just love modern, or they love a classic type of cube card. Yeah, you can, you can get away with a lot more if you're uh, just pulling from that list that people are already familiar with. Here is our pack. We've got the Craterhoof Behemoth, Findhorn Elves, Zealous Conscripts, Cathar Commando, Solemn Simulacrum, Emrakul the Aeon's Torn, Caracas, Thragtusk, Manalik, Packrat, Verdant Catacombs, Sword of Fire and Ice, Cauldra Complete, Natural Order, and Prognostic Sphinx. What are you taking out of this pack?
1: I... I'm probably going to take the Cowards line and just take Verdant Catacombs. I think the fun thing to do is like take Embercle and figure out what the heck you're supposed to do with it. Maybe take Caracas, which I do think is a really powerful mm-hmm. answer in cubes like this. You know, I played Caracas for a while on my cube and eventually just decided that it was too potent of an answer to have on a land. It's just so hard to answer the answer. Like, the fact that you can just repeatedly make Legends irrelevant. I mean, looking at this pack, it's like, oh, you have a way to cheat Emmercool into play? Cool, that's fun for you. Uh, now you don't, because I have a planes that just does this. That, I think, would be really powerful. So... I guess it's between Caracas and Verdant Catacombs for me. I'll take the less, the slightly less cowardly route and take Caracas here.
2: I think Caracas is a cool pick. I mean, it's such a low cost of inclusion, and it just always tends to do a lot more than you think it's going to do. And it does have a lot of both like reactive but also cool build-around potential for it.
1: Yeah, bouncing your own stuff is really fun, so it, it kind of does both.
2: I'm feeling like I just want to do something different. I, I just want to take Emrakul. I don't know if this is the right pick in any world in any day, but uh, I just that's how I'm feeling looking at this pack right now.
1: We have a little bit of time. Let's actually look at, I think it's interesting to use this pack as a lens to talk about the kinds of complexity that are on offer here. Okay. So, first of all, I think we're dealing with mostly entirely correct rules text or as close to entirely correct as matters, right? We have a Findhorn Elves here, which doesn't actually say, it's just the Ice Age printing of Fyndhorn Elves, so it says summon elves in the type line. I think almost everybody's going to sort of Surmise that that also means a creature. Um, it also specifically says add great mana to your mana pool. Mana pool is no longer referenced in rules text, and it says play visibility as an interrupt. That's also no longer a thing in the rules text. So we definitely have some not entirely correct rules text on finhorn elves, but not in a way that I would expect to confuse almost anybody. We do have a lot of, I think, emergent play pattern complexity here. So just looking at this pack from the perspective of a like newer player, Zealous Conscripts. I think anybody with experience knows that this is largely a combo piece with Kiki Jiki and Splinter Twin. I see this in the cube. I haven't looked at the list. I'm expecting to see Kiki Jiki or Splinter Twin or both in the list to support a Zealous Conscripts combo. Can you confirm or deny? I can confirm Kiki Jiki is absolutely here. You will not be disappointed. So that's a great example of how my context as a player that has played with these combos that is familiar with that interaction I see this card and read it totally differently. It was an invisible layer here that is an invisible, like, little flag that pops out to me that won't pop out to some people.
2: Yeah, I thought about this but didn't bring it up earlier because I'm not really sure how to evaluate it. In one sense, I think it does fall into that category of, like, this is a level two understanding that new players will not be distracted by because they will not see it. On the other hand... But losing to it sucks. Losing (laughs) to it really sucks. And it's like, oh, I didn't understand what that card was when I saw it in a pack because I didn't realize it was part of this combo. So I, I do think that avoiding some of these, like situations where you really need outside knowledge, like not just basic how to play Magic the Gathering, but what is the way that this card is usually used, can cause a
1: lot of friction. We do have some signed cards in this pack too, which Finn has actually uploaded scans of the signed cards, which is really cool, so you can see them in the cube list. And, you know, the rules text on Zealous Conscripts is somewhat substantially obscured by a signature, which, and again, none of this is criticized Finn, obviously. Like, Finn's got their own playgroup, they got their own reasons here, but this is just, I think, an interesting lens to look at. You know, if we were analyzing this cube in this pack, through the lens of this conversation we just had. This is a thing that, that pops out to me. I think a similar thing is also kind of true of Emrakul. Like like I said, I don't know how I'm going to get Emrakul into play. I'm sure there's plenty of ways in this cube if it's if it's in the list, but it's the kind of card that if you look at it as a less experienced player, you're just kind of like, okay, well either you're really that an, looks cool as hell you're really, I can, i'm gonna play 15 lands in my deck this right. is gonna be no problem either you're really inexperienced and you think you're just gonna get to 15 mana and cast it and you're like this card is really powerful it's gonna win the game or you're a little more experienced but maybe don't know how to play with ember cool in a more specific sense and you're like okay well i know i can't cast this what am i supposed to do with it i have no idea it's definitely a card that has a lot of complex strategic depth i think the same is true of cauldra complete this is also essentially a combo card you know you go and get it with stoneforge mystic put it into play for free uh it's also got other combinations of cards but you can also tinker it out and stuff like that so maybe not quite to the same extent as something like zell's conscripts but the same kind of like complexity and depth there i also think natural order is uh is a fender in this sense like natural order you read the card you can understand what it does but what it actually will do in a game it's hard to say unless you're experience with what the card does and what the meta of the environment is. This is the kind of cube where I expect it can go get something like an Atraxa, maybe a Progenitus if Finn's feeling a little old school, uh, something that is just going to end the game more or less immediately as soon as you Natural Order it out. We already see Craterhoof in this pack, which is a, a nice combination with Natural Order in the right deck. Natural Order also has some complexity here with the card printing. This is the mystical archive version, the Strixhaven spellbook, whatever version that has the like gold expressive frame, which it looks like a gold card in the pack. It doesn't look like a green card visually, which can definitely trip some people up. I have seen people pass these cards because they were scanning a pack for a card of the colors they were drafting and didn't see anything and just missed that this was a card that was in their colors. Not a lot of rules text complexity here. Also, all these cards are relatively simple in terms of the amount of rules text. I think Cauldra actually has the most complicated rules text I have to like read it a couple times and remember that it's got first strike and indestructible and whenever it deals damage to a creature, exile that creature and trample. So it's like this combination of effects that just mean like, yeah, you can't ever engage with this thing in combat. It's kind of got a little mini questing beast thing going on here where all of this text just amounts to don't even bother trying to engage with this thing in combat because you are going to fail. But it's a lot of words to get there. There's a fair few words on Thragtusk and psalm simulacrum but they're relatively simple. There's obviously a ton of words on Emrakul, cool, but you really only got to read that 15 in the corner, and then the rest of it you just assume is all great, and you don't have to worry about it all if you get to actually put it into play. So there's a little bit of like comprehension complexity here, but not all that much, I think, in this pack for a cube of this kind. Are there other kinds of complexity that we're, we're missing on here, Anthony, you think? I think this is just really making me realize
2: how much of the like classic like MTGO-style vintage cube type cube just includes a lot of cards that you really have to know what they do to understand like even yeah. even Caracas it's like not obvious that, absolutely that, that doesn't scream like put a plus and plus one counter on a creature and get a bonus it screams I don't I don't know <laughs> and I mean that is cool the fact that it can be both a reactive and part of a proactive strategic plan is a cool thing about it it also does make it more difficult for someone to potentially read this pack
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not confident at all in my ability to make the correct pick out of this pack given that I've never played this cube before. I think I know more or less the range of what these cards can do strategically, but how much each of those things is successful in this cube or not, hard to say. Cube's complicated. But like we said, I think, you know, we hear so often, the most common thing we hear from people is like, I wish I could get more people to play my cube. I wish I could get a full pod. I don't know how to grow my play group. Like, how do I just get more people to enjoy this thing that I love about the game? And I think a lot of people understate or underrate how important this feature is just making sure that the first time somebody drafts your cube regardless of their experience with the game or skill level they're able to have a like rewarding no feel bad time right and the variety of things related to accessibility that can keep them from having a rewarding no feel bad time really stack up and like i said like some people will just make a couple embarrassing puns because they didn't understand a card, and that will make them never come back. And uh, it's it's hard to know who those people are if you have a cube where that's more likely to happen.
2: Yeah, I think that's so true. And I, I think that many people have this hope that you know they'll build their cube, and then a bunch of cube players with their level of enthusiasm and experience will suddenly materialize. But I think for a lot That's of a people really point. in a lot of places, it will just take some work to get people excited about the format and potentially get people excited about, uh, you know, excited about drafting, excited about the same cards you are and be prepared sometimes to
1: create players from much less experienced players. I think even more saliently, the outcome of that is not that you will eventually have a bunch of people that are cube players in the sense that you originally expected. It's so that you have a bunch of people that are cube players that actually don't think about cube in the same way you do at all. We have a bunch of people that play cube every week with us that would not know what to do with this pack at all. They would be like, I what, what is this? Because they've never drafted a cube like the Magic Online Vintage Cube, which is what this is based on. And so the greatest thing we could possibly do is just broaden what our like understanding of a like cube player is to not just be people that know what to do with Zealous Concepts or Caracas. But instead, be anybody that is interested in drafting and playing Magic with their friends. It's a great time. Love to see more people getting into it. All right, let's wrap this episode up. There, a shorter one, but we've had a lot of longer ones recently. So I don't yeah. want to hear any complaints in the comments. Anthony and I are on the road somewhere. Probably, I'm going to say when this episode actually releases, it'll be 6:30 a.m. Eastern time. We actually probably won't be on the road at 5:30 a.m. Central. I don't think close to it. You're trying to, like, really, really precisely dox us here. <laughs> Very specific. I mean, like, yeah, we're somewhere in Ohio when you're hearing this, probably, statistically speaking. Uh, I'm feeling some pressure to, like, wrap things up, and I don't know how. I don't know yeah. the episode's over now. The episode is over now. You can go home now. <laughs> All right. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the Magic Cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast in their many, many versions and variations. This podcast is produced by Anthony and I thinking really hard about Magic Cards and then speaking into microphones about it. That's a really good, important episode, I think, Anthony. Well, Good job preparing all those notes. Thank you. I spent a lot of time on it. You're laughing because you know you didn't.
0: you spent so much time, thinking, so much about time thinking about it that it's relatively something. quick
1: for you to write down the things that actually matter. Yeah, I'm sure I missed something.
0: are wonderful in summer don't even get me started on sprinklers when it comes down to it it cannot be a cold drink they know this in southern India where they drink spiced buttermilk to beat the heat however you're not in Bangalore so you head to the fridge to get some ice for a water ah. Remember when you used to live with the guys? (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) Cubes for my boys.